Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a rare example of justice with the impeachment on Saturday of a MAGA crook who uses religious piety as the last refuge of the scoundrel. In a case of perfect irony, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton was impeached by the far-right Republican-dominated Texas House Legislature and faces a trial in the Senate for bribery and abuse of office. Joining us from Austin, Texas, is Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. We'll discuss the downfall of this brazen hypocrite who sued Biden based on Trump's big lie that he won the election, but until now has survived being under investigation for securities fraud, paying off a mistress with campaign funds, and having his entire staff quit to go to the FBI asking them to investigate Paxton's corruption. Then we'll examine the recent promises by Ron DeSantis as to what kind of president he would be as he plans to do to the nation what he has done to Florida by increasing his personal control over the state while punishing his enemies and rewarding those who follow his orders. Joining us to discuss DeSantis's vow to reconstitutionalize the federal government and discipline the bureaucracy while having the Department of Justice and FBI answer to him personally is Stephen Harper, a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He is the author of several books, including The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis, and Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster Story. He blogs at the Belly of the Beast, and we will discuss his article at Common Dreams, Ron DeSantis Has a Very Un-American Vision for America. Then finally, as the counteroffensive in Ukraine gets underway, we will speak with Bronislav Slantchev, a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, where he teaches courses on international relations, national security and game theory, and studies military coercion, intra-war negotiations, the conduct of war, and war termination. His articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, the International Studies Quarterly, and Security Studies, among others, and he's the author of Military Threats, The Cost of Coercion and the Price of Peace. We'll discuss what a defeat of Putin's special military operation will mean as a Game of Thrones power struggle is shaping up among the elites with some truly hideous replacements vying to take over. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast This is Democracy and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeremy Nice to Suri. be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeremy. And in terms of the fight for democracy, an amazing uh, example of democracy took place on Saturday in the Texas House of the Texas legislature, where 
a majority of 121 to 23 impeached the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, and referred him to the Senate for a trial on charges of bribery and abuse of office and obstruction. And I guess the real point here is, you know, the impeachments of Donald Trump have been led by Democrats, but this was led by House Republicans in the Texas legislature, and boy, they are way to the right. There's no liberals amongst them. So what happened? Well, I, I want to just underline your point, Ian. Uh, there were 121 members of the House who voted to impeach Ken Paxton. And it should be said, Ken Paxton is one of Donald Trump's closest uh, supporters in the United States. He's the attorney general who initially tried to file a case with the Supreme Court to overturn the election of 2020. Uh, yesterday, Ken Paxton was calling uh, members of the House and threatening them. And Donald Trump uh, issued a statement on Saturday saying that he would work against any Republican who voted to impeach Paxton. Nonetheless, 60 Republicans, along with 61 Democrats, voted to impeach uh, Paxton. Uh, it's really quite extraordinary. And I think the main reason that uh, that many Republicans voted to impeach Paxton was not really that his crimes were so horrible. They were, but everyone's known that for a while. It's that they believe now that this kind of extreme uh, politics is actually a liability and they don't want to be associated with it. So just to go back on how we got to this situation where 20 articles of impeachment uh, come from the House chamber and go to the Senate for a trial. But the genesis of this is, you know, as you mentioned, he'd been under investigation for securities and and also he had an affair with a, a woman who he managed to get a wealthy donor to pay her off, give her a job. But the real thing that seemed to have sort of triggered this was that back in 2020, the top deputies in Ken, Ken Paxton's attorney general's office all quit en masse and eight them, talking about eight of them, they reported their boss to the FBI accusing him of bribery and abusing his office to help this real estate developer, Nate Paul. And then four of these deputies of the Paxton's uh, brought a whistleblower lawsuit complaint and that led to a federal investigation. And then what happened seems to have happened is that then Paxton then wants the Texas taxpayer to pay $3.3 million to privately settle this uh, whistleblower uh, case, right? And that was just too much for the House Speaker? Well, I think yes, in part. And as um, as the, the Republicans who brought the impeachment investigation to the House brought up today, uh, Saturday, the... Um, case came before them because Paxton had asked the House to provide $3.3 million to pay for the settlement of his suit, which which certainly shows a lot of chutzpah. Uh, and that brought this to their investigating committee. But there's a deeper issue here, Ian, which is that uh, Paxton has turned the Attorney General's Office of Texas, as everyone knows, over the last five to six years, he's turned that office into an office of retribution against enemies of Donald Trump and retribution against his enemies, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. He's basically used that office to enrich himself and to attack anyone he perceives as an enemy. And fellow Republicans have come to recognize that that kind of behavior actually undermines the rule of law and undermines what they are trying to do, even as far-right Republicans in the state. So they are fighting now against what I would say is a part of their party in Texas that looks like what Trump is to the larger Republican Party. So what will be the fate then in the in the Senate, given that they need two thirds? And by the way, one member of the Senate happens to be Paxton's wife, right? <laughs> you, you couldn't write this, could you? I mean, it, it, so far, his wife has not said she'd recuse herself. In the past, she hasn't recused herself from votes that affect even his salary. Uh, I don't know if she can be forced to recuse herself or not. And we don't know what will happen in the Senate. But it's interesting. On Saturday, uh, both Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, issued statements supporting Paxton. Uh, the lieutenant governor, uh, Dan Patrick, who is the head of the Senate, 
he did not issue a statement, nor did the governor. So it's it's unclear whether Paxton has support from the lieutenant governor or from major Republicans in the Senate. I don't think we know what will happen there, but that's interesting unto itself that it's not a foregone conclusion. Right, and the lieutenant governor in Texas seems to have more power than the governor, right? In many ways. The lieutenant governor basically oversees the uh, upper house. It would be as if the vice president really ran the Senate. Uh, And imagine how different our federal government would look then. So yes, the lieutenant governor has a lot of power and a lot of influence, particularly over the Republicans who make up uh, the vast majority of the Senate. Well, it is somewhat gratifying, I think, to have what looks like justice, and that hasn't really happened. You haven't had the, the impeachment vote in the Senate, and you haven't had the trial. But the guy's already been suspended because of the House vote. And that in and, itself and, is very satisfying because, you know, frankly, in this current political environment, we get nothing but horrible news from really nasty people who want right. to turn America into some kind of fascist state, whether it's Donald Trump, who is no makes no secret of his love affair for dictators, and he's a wannabe mob boss and dictator, and that's obvious. Then you've got his imitator in Ron DeSantis is basically on a quest for an authoritarian path to power, uh, which would then turn him into an even more effective fascist than Trump. So the idea that you've got some conscience in the Republican Party that have stood by Trump, and remember, after the Capitol was sacked by these insurgents led by Trump in calling for the murder of the vice president or the lynching of the vice president, I can't remember what it, how many numbers of, members of the House voted against the, you know impeaching Trump. So this is a different situation now. So can we correctly read from this situation that there's something happened within the within the right of the Republican Party that some vestiges of conscience and decency are emerging? Well, I wouldn't go that far, Ian, but I would say this, and and it might be even more significant uh, to put it this way. We are seeing the Republican Party truly at war with itself. Uh, And Texas, as always, is a microcosm of the Republican Party because Texas is such a large part of the Republican Party. What we have within the Republican Party is we still have the Donald Trump faction, which has basically dictated the party's actions for the past six years or so. And that faction includes uh, Ken Paxton, Ted Cruz, Uh, Ron DeSantis is trying to appeal to that group. And this is a group that, as you say, favors authoritarian solutions to what they see as the problems of American society today. And the problems they see are problems of diversity and problems of uh, people making choices about whether to have children or not, and et cetera. So they they want a more authoritarian set of solutions. They say that themselves, actually. Uh, And then there's another part of the Republican Party that we saw on display in the Texas House on Saturday. Uh, and Andrew Murr uh, is the person who led, he's a Republican, a, a dyed-in-the-wool Republican, who led the uh, investigation of Ken Paxton. And if you listen to him, uh, this is a man who embraces all the conservative positions, but also believes in democracy and believes that a Republican Party that becomes authoritarian cannot achieve the goals he wants of a truly uh, democratic conservative society. And so um, those two parts of the party are at war with one another. I think we're seeing that in the primaries. Look at the number of Republicans who have tried to jump in to challenge Donald Trump. Um, there are two Republican parties today, and we saw both of them in the Texas House. But the theory, of course, Jeremy, has always been that the Trump part of the Republican Party has the advantage in the primaries because the the more activists uh, further to the right uh, Republicans tend to vote. Well, yes, uh, but I would point out to everyone that the Texas House is one of the most gerrymandered legislatures. And uh, so you should have had uh, this playing to Trump's strength in the vote there today. I think even among um, traditional primary voters and even in gerrymandered districts, there are many second thoughts now, buyer's remorse, about what Trump represents. And I think also a recognition that this authoritarian streak is hurting the party nationally. Um, Many of the Republicans who voted to impeach Paxton on Saturday are Republicans who, quite frankly, are embarrassed by his behavior. And they don't want to defend it any longer. But are they embarrassed by Trump's behavior? 
we we don't know, do we? I mean, we. It's amazing that that anybody didn't notice that <laughs> that Paxton yes. was he was under a securities indictment. He you know he paid right. off a mistress and he wears his Christian values on his sleeve and you know it's the old twist on Samuel Johnson's adage that last refuge of the scoundrel is Completely. is religion yeah. in this case. And so and then and then his entire staff quits and goes to the FBI and says that you you know you got to investigate this guy. It's amazing that he's been that brazen but then you know so was trump so i'm just wondering if i agree but maybe this is maybe this is when the fever breaks i mean it's it's hard to tell we'll only know when we see more evidence um but trump tried directly on saturday to pressure republicans in the state to uh, all he wanted them to do was not to vote to impeach uh, they didn't have to express support for Paxton. Those who spoke out on behalf of uh, the former attorney general or the suspended attorney general, um, they only just defended that the their objections to the procedure. They didn't even defend him. Uh, but nonetheless, only 23 of them listened to Trump. Uh, so perhaps they're embarrassed as well. They're certainly resisting his pressure. What, what we're what we're seeing in Texas and elsewhere is that Trump's efforts to bully still sometimes work but not with the same efficacy and not as uh, universally within his party as they did a few years ago. Right, and this Republican gerrymandered House in the legislature voted 121 to 23, as you mentioned, only 23. So that is a statement in itself. Does this, though, help DeSantis? In other words, if Trump is losing his luster, uh, you know, as I pointed out earlier, I, I, in many ways, fear DeSantis more because he's a more disciplined fascist than this <laughs> reckless clown. I, I think that if I'm Nikki Haley or um, uh, Tim Scott, um, two other candidates, um, or uh, Chris Sununu from New Hampshire, who apparently is going to run as well, or Asa Hutchinson, I think this benefits me. I mean, th- 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 this is an, this is a, a vote for a party that returns to decency, that remains conservative. I mean, most of those who voted to impeach Paxton, certainly most of the Republicans who vote, voted to impeach him, uh, they are they believe in abortion bans and they want to send more force to the border. They, you know, they're all on board with many of the Republican Party positions, uh, but they want to be seen as a as a party of decency. And, and the problem DeSantis has is his own behavior in Florida mimics that of Trump. Um, and I think what Nikki Haley and others are going to try to run on is a Republican Party that's conservative but looks decent and looks like it's safe for democracy. Well, Jeremy Suri, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Jeremy Suri, who holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, where he's a professor of history and public affairs. He's the co-host of the podcast This Is Democracy and the author and editor of a number of books, including The Impossible Presidency, The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. We can take a restation break and back examining the recent promises by Ron DeSantis as to what kind of president he would be as he plans to do to the nation what he has done to Florida. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Harper, a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He is the author of several books, including The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis, and Crossing Hoffa, A Teamster Story, and he blogs at The Belly of the Beast. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Ron DeSantis Has a Very Un-American Vision for America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Harper. Thanks, Ian. It's always I always enjoy our conversation. Well, thanks, Stephen. And DeSantis, after his botched uh, announcement, is hitting the ground running, and he's really basically boasting that I'm going to be a much more aggressive 
chief executive, and I'm going to use the powers of the executive as I've done in the state of Florida. And frankly, what he's done in Florida is pretty scary. He's systematically strengthened the office of the governor. He's stretched his the constitutional powers in a way that no other governor has done before. He seized control of the state's uh, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, he's deployed the state's police for all kinds of political purposes. And he's created a new law enforcement team to monitoring voting. Uh, and he's taken over a small liberal arts college. So now he's boasting that if he becomes president, he would reconstitutionalize the federal government he would discipline the bureaucracy. And then he went on to say, Republican presidents have accepted the canard that the Department of Justice and the FBI are, quote, independent. They are not independent agencies. They are a part of the executive branch. They answer to the elected president of the United States. So there you have a guy that he wants to be, um, in effect, a dictator who has his own private police force known as the FBI. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's a frightening prospect. And I'll add two more to your, and it's a very long list. Uh, um, you covered uh, most of the highlights. I'll add two more. Um, with the aid of a supermajority in the Florida legislature, they're able to, he rub, they rubber stamp everything he wants. Um, and when he, and when he comes across an, an elected, now this is, a, this is a critical point, an elected, popularly elected state prosecutor, he fires him. Because the prosecutor says, you know, I, I'm not going to I don't think I'm going to bring cases, uh, which prosecutors do all the time, by the way, as a matter of their discretion. I'm not going to bring cases because I think you're at that point. It was a 15 week abortion ban is uh, is now now we're down to six weeks. Um, the other thing I would add is that he has made uh, four of the six appointments to the Florida Supreme Court. Um, so he is he is in, in every way that you can think of. Um, locked up that state. Right. Well, he's um, boasted that he'd do a seven to two majority on the Supreme Court. That's right. That's right. And and it's uh, and, and and here's the even the equally frightening prospect to me is that the stuff that he's been doing, particularly with his rubber stamp legislature, um, it isn't isn't democratic in the sense that you think democracy is in, in, at least at some level involves the preferences of the people who vote for the people in power. But what he has been pushing through the state legislature is, in every real sense of the word, uh, minority rule. You know, spearheading this uh, six-week abortion ban, which is uh, a ban on abortions after six weeks, which is, which is not where the American people are by a long shot. Days after the mass shooting in Nashville, he, he pushed through a, a concealed weapons uh without a permit or training law. Again, six, two thirds of the people, there was a poll, that, even as we speak on this interview, there's a poll that just came out of CNN that says two thirds of Americans want stricter gun control laws. And you can go right down the list, you know, his assault on diversity, equality, and, and inclusion, um, his assault on the, on the gay community. It's just, and it's all of this is, this is minority rule stuff. Um, and it's happening in real time in Florida. Um, and, you know, Hillary Clinton famously said about Trump, when somebody tells you what they're going to do, when someone shows you what they're going to do, believe them. Right. Um, and I believe the guy. Yeah, I believe it. Um, our hope is that he's he's such an unpleasant candidate um, that uh, that even even Republicans will will reject him. And right now he's still down by Trump, you know, down by 30 points to Trump in, in the Republican side of things. But he's he's essentially you're exactly your analysis is exactly correct. He's a threat to out Trump Trump. He's Trump on steroids. Trump 2.0 always more dangerous because he's 32 years younger and he's smarter. Um, well, this crusade, though, his anti-DEI crusade, diversity, equity and inclusion. Those right. are the what he's targeting. And you have to ask yourself, well, what's wrong with diversity? I mean, for God's sake, in nature, ecosystems are more resilient when there's diversity. Human societies are more interesting. The colors are more interesting than monochrome. And then yep. in terms of equity, well, my God, you know, we have extreme inequality in this country. Why not equity? Here's, and then, here's, then, the, yeah. then the last one, inclusion. I mean... He's supposed to be religious, and he's going to 
wear his religion on his sleeve in order to get the Christian right to vote. But um, Christianity is all about inclusion. And wokeness, right. I mean, <laughs> what harm does well, the... Do, I mean, obviously it's a code. It's racist because it means it's either black or somebody that supports African-American. But what does wokeness that's harm? That's you know. Yeah, well, you're making the fatal error, Ian, of applying logic and reason uh, to and uh, to uh, ir- uh, to an irrational argument. And the, the answer to the question, of course, is no. No one should be, should be opposed to any of those things. Mm-hmm. But much of the Trump MAGA base is opposed to all of those things. They're fearful of diversity. They're, you know, equality. Uh, you know, these are all buzzwords that that just get them all riled up and so the, the this is this is the this is one of the problems with with DeSantis as a candidate one of the things that makes him a terrible problem is that um he knows better too he's he, he he went to Yale University Harvard Law School he knows what he's doing and what he's doing is he's pushing rhetorical hot buttons that are designed to capture as much of the Trump MAGA base as he can um and and Try to try to do it without alienating Trump, which although now I guess as of the the botched uh, rollout, he's now going more head on against Trump. Um, and but you know it's it's none of it is logical, no, none of it is sensical. It's all it's all about appealing to emotions and anger and not to reason. Um, and it and 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 it's uh, you know that's where that's where the Republican Party in general is right now. I mean, that's what that's what uh, has happened in the four years that Trump, five now it's six years that Trump has been in control of of what happens over there. Um, but don't you, you think, it, Stephen, you, you that, in the Congress? But don't you think that somebody's got to notice? The people in Florida, you'd wonder that this guy is all about ambition. He's been using the governorship there as a springboard. It obviously, doesn't give a damn about governing in terms of the state of Florida. And he's managed to get this rubber stamp legislator to basically rubber stamp everything. But it's so flagrant that he's so ambitious. Yes. And now he's appeal to the Republicans saying uh, that he's better than Trump is based upon right. the idea that he's younger, he's, as he points out. And he also will be able to do two terms, whereas Trump will only be able to do one term. So right. do you think those arguments are going to work? I mean, p- apart from the fact that he's, he just has no people skills? Yeah. My answer to your question is, I sure hope not. Now, the one thing I will say is that two of, two of, the, of his more, uh, what I would say, contentious uh, actions have occurred uh, since he was elected. Um, one is the, uh, uh, the, the spearheading of the, the six-week abortion ban, and, and that is as as you know, the Dobbs case uh, poked the bear, and it, I think it cost the Republicans greatly in the November last November elections. Um, and and uh, DeSantis only recently signed the six week abortion ban, and it'll only go into effect if the Florida Supreme Court upholds the fifteen week abortion ban, which is currently before it. Um, so you have to hope at least that that's a kind of issue. And the other issue that's also new in terms of having recently been signed by, by DeSantis is the, is the gun control stuff, which, you know, both of those, both of those issues are, they may be hot button issues for the MAGA base, but they're it, it pretty, it's becoming pretty clear that they're also the kinds of issues that really do mobilize uh, Democrats and progressives as well to get out the vote. And at the end of the day, that's the, that'll be the question, right? And I think the answer to the question that you pose, which is, well, how did he get how did he get to do so well in Florida is is twofold. One, as I say, the most some of the most contentious things are very recent. And number two, I think, unfortunately, like most like most of the country, things like democracy, the rule of law, separation of powers, those are all interesting, ephemeral, theoretical, hypothetical context, you know, uh, concepts to most people. You know, people, when they vote, say, well, how am I feeling? You know, how's the economy? I mean, that's really that's really the way that, you know, pocketbooks, the pocketbook, you know, trumps these what I think are much, much bigger and more profound issues. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of it is going to turn on, on, you know, what it is that causes people to vote. And at least up to this point, I think uh, DeSantis has gotten through uh, with the popularity that he has because. Uh, by and large, Florida's had a f- fairly successful economy, despite the fact, despite the fact 
that he wanted, you know, to reduce uh, restrictions during the pandemic. He's declared war on science by declaring, you know, Fauci a, a, an enemy of the people, uh, Dr. Fauci. Um, I mean, I hate to, he, he thinks Trump, he, he believes Trump went too far in imposing pandemic restrictions. Well, you know, there, as you know, there probably know, there've been studies that have done that, said that, that, that have indicated that millions of people would have been saved if Trump had taken a more responsible view of the pandemic tort, you know, with respect to some of the restrictions. But, you know, like I say, facts, reason, knowledge, science, that all drops out when the appeal of the candidate is to anger and emotion. And and that'll, that'll be the test, really, because DeSantis is trying to sell himself as a competent version of Trump. Uh, but competence is not what got Trump elected. Anger, uh, anger is what got Trump elected, anger among the people. Well, but Trump is a authentic fascist in the sense that he clearly admires despots and dictators. Right. He's no, no yes. question about it. And he modeled himself on either a sort of mob boss or a Mussolini. I mean, that's who he is. He's no, he makes no secret about it. This guy is much more cynical and not... He's not an authentic fascist in as much as, as you point out, he's more educated and he's cleverer, he's more tactical and more strategic. But he is using an, this authoritarian path to power. So you could make the case that he's a more dangerous fascist than this reckless idiot, blowhard, complete manifest failure that uh, is running again uh, for the presidency after a, a spectacularly failed presidency. I, I think I think he I think the case I think you're exactly right. I think DeSantis is a far more dangerous character um, than Trump. Trump is, you know, Trump would Trump would, don't get me wrong. Trump would be a, a disaster for the country in so many ways. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna take us. I don't even know how long to recover from the damage that he inflicted in just four years. I can't imagine what the next four would be like if he were to be president again. Um, starting with the pardons to all of the rioters on, uh, during the January 6th insurrection. Uh, but in some ways, DeSantis would be even more dangerous, I, I think. Um, right. well, and, and, and one of the reasons is he has the eight years, as he himself says, you know, I have eight years right. to do what I'm going to do. So uh, how's he going to use them? So let's just in the last few minutes, and I wanted to go back to your article at Common Dream, Stephen Harper. Ron DeSantis has a very un-American vision for America, and you talk about the book burning that's and book banning that's going on in Texas, in um, Florida, which is both both states actually Texas too. Texas, Texas. leads the way. Florida's just just behind them in terms of the right. number of books banned. So wow. here, here you've got DeSantis has passed these laws, etc., and they are similar to, by the way, in the laws in Texas. What the right-wing Republicans are doing now is that they're passing laws that enable just one right-wing activist to be able to stymie any kind of state or local law or rule. For example, on, on the abortion, they allow in Texas, they allow one person can be a vigilante and get a reward. They've just passed a law targeting Houston, which is a big Democratic area, where one person can complain about the election and and the state then takes over the election apparatus. And in Florida, you've got DeSantis with his one person can complain about a book in a library and get it banned. And that's what happened with this poem by the young uh, Amanda Gorman, who spoke it so eloquently at uh, Biden's inauguration. So that's extraordinary. And you write a lot about it. And I had no idea that this woman turns out to be a right-wing activist. She's been at Proud Boy rallies. And also, I think, what's the group they're called? Mums Against Mums for Hate? Mums for, moms, moms, moms for Liberty. Mums for Liberty. Moms right. for Liberty. Yep, yep, right. Moms for Liberty. Yep, the Daily Beast just did a, a, a long article. She was originally exposed uh, by um, a, a different group, Moms Against Fascism. Um, which picked up her identity from the Miami Herald that broke the story that she was the person who filed the complaint. But you know what's telling about a lot of this stuff? You know, the, the political affiliations don't surprise you, right? I mean, in terms of where these complaints are going to come from. Um, but when you actually take a moment 
and and read the form. I mean, it's it's such a simple little form that you fill out in order to start this process that results in this case in an, in an elementary in, in the in an entire elementary school uh, being unable to find the book in its library. Um, you know, essentially banishing it to the to higher grades um, is is it's stunning when you read the form and how little it takes to do it. So you get, you get questions, you know, the standard form questions are things like, um, did you review all the material? Yes. Um, are you aware of professional reviews of the materials? Her answer, I don't need it. Um, for what age group would you recommend this material? She says not for schools. Um, what do you believe is the function of this material? The question asks. And she answers, cause confusion and indoctrinate students. And, and my favorite is that she's asked to identify the author publisher, uh, who, who's Amanda Gorman. And, and the, the parent, Daly Salinas, says that the author publisher of the poem was Oprah Winfrey. Right. Um, where, where do you start? I mean, where, where do you start? And if you read, as you say, that it was an eloquent, beautifully delivered I mean, it's a it's right up there with Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in terms of the, the kind of impact that you must have felt when you when you heard it, saw it. I remember watching it as it was happening. Um, and I, it was just it was amazing. It was amazing. And the notion that this is somehow, you know, inappropriate uh, for student elementary school students um, in the state of Florida. I mean, if I were a parent of an elementary school kid in Florida, I'd send my kid to school with this book and I'd send him enough. In fact, I'd send him a, a case of them and he could pass them around and give them to his friends. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's an inspirational poem. Uh, sure. which she has then had published as a book, but that's frightening stuff. You know, one person can trigger a process and then, and the reason that it then succeeded as much as it did is because we're kind of back where we started, you know, DeSantis has run the, the, the state uh, as such a tyrant that local school boards, and there have been articles written about this, are fearful of reprisal if they don't essentially fold to the to the extreme elements uh, that make complaints like these. Um, well, that's the beginning of the end of America as we know it. Right. Well, it's pretty clear. You've got one fascist running against another fascist on the Republican side, and you've got a president on the Democratic side who is, you know, not doing well in the polls. And the American people have to step up here and, and stop fascism. I mean, and stop this move towards the tyranny of the minority. I mean, they've got so many levers to entrench minority rule on the Republican side with the Electoral College and the, and the control of the Senate through rural states, etc. The mechanism is there. So, it's not just that the Democrats have to vote. They have to vote in huge numbers to overcome the deficit that's built in because of the way that um, minority rule is protected in this country. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I and I wish there were more students of of Weimar Germany between you know between the two world wars to see the people who say you know well it can't happen here. Mm -hmm. It's happening here. Right. It's, it's happening here. And the question is, will 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 true Americans rise up to stop it? Um, right. so they I don't should, have to do much. I to, shouldn't to say just Democrats, by the way. Everybody should. I mean, you know, Republicans yeah. in well, particular. The only the only people who yeah. can stop fascists and the move to the far right are people on the right who can talk to the far right and, and you know talk them down if if that's at all possible. So yeah, uh, I stand, or marginalized. I, yeah. I correct myself. But at any rate, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Stephen. My pleasure, Ian. Always, always great talking to you. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Harper, who's a professor at Northwestern University and a regular contributor to The American Lawyer. He's the author of several books, including The Lawyer Bubble, A Profession in Crisis, and Crossing Hoffer, A Teamster Story. And he blogs at The Belly of the Beast, and he has an article at Common Dreams. Ron DeSantis has a very un-American vision for America. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the counteroffensive in Ukraine as it gets underway and discuss what a defeat of Putin's special military operation will mean as a Game of Thrones power struggle is shaping up among the elites with some truly hideous replacements vying to take over. I can never be 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Branislav Slantchev, who is Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, where he teaches courses in international relations, national security, and game theory and studies military coercion, intra-war negotiations, the conduct of war, and war termination. His articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, and Security Studies, among others. And he's the author of Military Threats, The Cost of Coercion, and The Price of Peace. Welcome to Background Briefing, Branislav Slanchev. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Secretary of the Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, Alexei Danilov is saying that the counteroffensive could begin today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, or in a week. So is it happening? Or, I mean, my understanding is that the initial phases would be striking deep into behind the Russian lines to disrupt supplies and, uh, and reserves, etc. What's your understanding of what's happening at the moment? Well, um there is, there are some indications that it's coming closer. Um, there's, you know, these um, incursions into Russia. There's continuous strikes uh, behind the Russian lines, especially using now the British-supplied uh, longer-range weapons, the missiles, uh, Storm Shadow. Uh, whether it will has begun, will begin tomorrow or in a week, I I don't think anybody can tell you that's not involved with the planning of this. Um, I'm not even sure that uh, U.S. intelligence will know about it because um, the Ukrainians are keeping some of the cards, you know, playing some of the cards close to the chest, as they should. And so, again, the predictions have been that this is kind of roughly the time frame. End of uh, May, early June is where it should be starting. But again, to tell you that it's going to come this tomorrow in, in a week, I, I would not, <laughs> I would not be making any forecast like this. Well, there is an interesting statement coming from the head of the Royal Air Force in the United Kingdom, Air Marshal Sir Mike Wigston, and he is quoted in the British newspaper The Telegraph saying that when the Ukraine conflict, I'm just quoting what he wrote or what he said, when the Ukraine conflict is over and Ukraine has restored its borders, as it must, we will have a damaged, vindictive and brutal Russia whose means of harming us through air attack, missile attack and subsurface attack will continue. And they will also demonstrate that this is more than just about one person. There is a whole structure and a hierarchy behind Putin. So even if Putin was to disappear off the stage, there are countless others who could replace him and could be as equally as brutal and vicious to their own people and to neighboring states. So does this mean that even in a victory, this war won't be over because you'll be dealing with a brutal and vindictive Russia? Um, okay, so I kind of uh, agree with part of the statement, but I think um, I disagree with another part. So let me just clarify. I think uh, it is true that uh, if the war ends short of any sort of Russian victory, which I think is likely to be the case, the Russians will be what you would call a revisionist state. Now, that means they would like to change the outcome, but of course, wanting to do something and being able is uh, two different things. Uh, from the latest estimates from US intelligence that I've seen, they're predicting that if the war were to end today, it will take the Russians at least five years and maybe as long as 10 to even restore themselves to where they were when the war began last year. And so, yes, we will be dealing with, again, I would call them a revisionist state, revisionist government who would seek to undo the the, the result of the war that they don't like. To me, this uh, simply means um, that Ukraine will have to be on the defensive for, for the foreseeable future, and it will have to be supported in this for the foreseeable future, which means inevitably it will have to become a NATO member. And so whether the Russians will then dare to actually do something about it is um, a very different question. And this is why I disagree with the statement, because um, if uh, the war ends the way I think it does, uh, Putin will have a very serious uh, you know, domestic problem to deal with. 
Again, I don't think he will be taken out. I mean, who knows? He may be assassinated or something. But I don't think he'll be removed from power by some faction and then replaced with somebody even more vicious than he is. Um, the problem there is that the, I'm sure there are people who would love to prosecute the war differently than he does. Uh, but there are also many people who just want to extricate Russia out of this mess. Um, they may have kind of agreed initially that this, let's try this, but now that it's not working, um, uh, the costs that they're suffering themselves, I think, are pretty high. And the only, I mean, um, among the reasons that they're not moving against Putin is because Putin is very difficult to replace. This whole rule is based on these competing factions where he's kind of the balancer among them. Everything goes through him. And so all these factions are afraid because they don't know what if we try to remove him and then the other faction you know, becomes dominant and wipes us out. And so everybody kind of wants to keep him in place in that sense, which, uh, which is part of the way he's created the system. And this is how he secures himself in power. And so this idea that inevitably it must be somebody more bloodthirsty than him or anything like this, I think it's far-fetched. I think not only will the Russians not be able to do anything, um, I mean, yeah, sure, they can declare mobilizations, they can do whatever, but it doesn't mean that they actually can do it. But it is very, I mean, to me, it's actually more likely that whoever comes um, to power after Putin is likely to just blame everything as a one big mistake on Putin, try to keep everything on him, and try to restore relations with the, with the West as much as they can. Because at the end of the day, what's happening to Russia now is very bad, uh, longer term, they're becoming a, basically a subordinate state to China. And I'm very sure that a lot of the Russian elites do not relish this idea. And so um, I do not believe that we need to kind of worry too much. Oh, the Russians will be so upset and put, they're going to come in. I mean, what are they going to do that they're not doing now or trying to do? Are they going to suddenly acquire capabilities they uh, are not using? <laughs> no. And so right now, this is we see the limit of their capabilities right now, I think. And this is what the reality will be for any successive governments. Well, there's already jockeying and, and frictions, if not pure hatred, between some of the inner circles and these different groups of elites, these clans, if you will. You've got the head of the National Guard, Zolotov, who hates the head of the FSB, Botnikov. And then you've got... Of course, Prigozhin, openly. I mean, he was he did this sit-down interview with Dolgov, the uh, pro-Russian blogger, where he actually more or less said, "We've lost the war. You, the Ukrainians have really surprised us, and we've got to hunker down and turn the country into North Korea, build up, close our borders, turn ourselves into a Stalinist state, get our act together, and then go back to war." I mean, this guy, by the way. Prigozhin, he started out as a criminal robber, and his specialty was robbing and strangling and beating up women. And he carries a sledgehammer and smashes the heads of people within his own ranks who want to defect or whatever, and he shows it all on TV. I mean, how could a, a nuclear-armed country end up with a psychopath in charge? Not that Putin is not psychotic in his own way. Well, so there are two kind of takes on Prigozhin in particular. Um, and um, one is that, yes, he's now become this semi-independent actor. He's styling himself as a successor and things like this. I actually don't subscribe to this idea. I do not think he's independent. I think he's always been a project by Putin. And the moment he ceases to be useful to Putin, he will go. Uh, one of the reasons I think he's allowed to say the stuff that he's saying right now um, is essentially that's a survival. To me, that sounds like a survival strategy by Putin. Basically, look at what happens if you try to take me out. This is the guy you're going to have to deal with. And so the, the guy with the sledgehammer that is constantly also not just calling to turning Russia into North Korea. Which Russian will want to turn the country to turn into North Korea? I mean, seriously, what does that even mean? And so... If you're one of these elites thinking of maybe replacing, removing Putin, if you think, well, what if we do this and then Prigozhin comes next, you would think twice. And so I actually think that Prigozhin is only going to survive only as long as he's useful to Putin. And the moment he really becomes some kind of independent force or tries to act independently, they're going to climb down on him very quickly. 
So that is my take on him. I think it's all basically political theater for internal consumption for the most part. But the problem, of course, is that it may get out of hand. I mean, the people may actually start treating them. I have seen videos now from Russians in the in the border areas, like in Belgorod, Oblast, um, appealing directly to Prigozhin for protection instead of Putin. And this is um, that's not a good thing, obviously, from uh, from the perspective of the Kremlin. Uh, but the last time Prigozhin overstepped a couple of times, obviously they had some chats with him because he quickly retracted or kind of explained how he was being, had been misunderstood and misrepresented. And so I'm pretty much convinced that um, it's not as it appears when it comes to him, that he's not really this guy who magically came, you know, was a criminal, spent time in jail, then was a cook, you know, run a catering company very successful, and suddenly he's running this super successful international mercenary force. Uh, out of nowhere. That that just doesn't happen, at least to, to my mind. So, uh, Branislav, I, I noticed a, an article by Boris Kagalitsky, a Russian Marxist theoretician and sociologist who was a political dissident in the Soviet Union and now a dissident in Russia. And he he's sending a message to the American left, but it, the message would also, should also be sent to the Republicans in the House who are thinking about cutting aid to uh, Ukraine uh, because it's so obvious that Putin's best play, since he's doing so poorly on the battlefield, is to get the House of Representatives to cut off aid and to bring back Donald Trump, who clearly is taking orders from the Kremlin. Even calling, by the way, Trump is actually calling for his cohorts in, in the MAGA House, the the so-called Freedom Caucus, to default. I mean, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. But this is what this Russian uh, Marxist theoretician is basically, this is his appeal, saying, how could you want to live in a country with no free press or independent courts, in a country where the police have the right to break into your house without a warrant, in a country where museum buildings and collections formed over decades are handed over to churches, heedless of the threat of losing unique artefacts, in a country where schools drift away from the study of science and plan to abolish the teaching of foreign languages, but conduct lessons which children about the important during which children are taught to write denunciations and are taught to hate all other peoples in a country which everyday broadcasts appeals on TV to destroy Paris, London, Warsaw with a nuclear strike. That is the face of Russia today, is it not? Um, yes. And uh, so there's two things here that I think we need to first distinguish. Uh, uh, one is this, the radical kind of left and right in the U.S. and what they say. Um, which is totally out of whack with your average American's feelings on this. I just saw a um, poll conducted by the University of Chicago's Harris School, which has been tracking public opinion in the U.S. for support for Ukraine, and it's barely budged, essentially. Right now, only and it's bipartisan, only 4% of Democrats and 8% of Republicans oppose helping Ukraine. And so I don't care what the MAGA caucus or the ultra-left, you know, Marxists want. Um, there's too few of them to make any difference. This is a bipartisan support. It's going to survive. I think even if Trump were to become president, it's going to survive this. It's just it won't be possible to change this. I think the public and the elites in the U.S. have made up their minds on this, and they're solidly behind Ukraine. And I do not feel I, that's that's why these calls are so desperate from both sides. You have the MAGA crowd on one hand, and you have the kind of what I call the tankies who have always, you know, disliked imperialism as long as, you know, it came time to now denounce the Russians for doing it, then suddenly it's okay. Um, but to me, this is just noise. I find it very upsetting to read about, but in the realities of the politics is that the West has consolidated um, about this war, and it's uh, Putin's strategy to divide the West, I think, will fail. Um, I also don't believe that's the second point, that the people who kind of support Russia in this, um, they clearly either, I mean, none of them are moving to live to, to, to Russia to live there. And that tells you all you need to know about, you know, the questions that you ask. Do they really want to do this? Now, of course not. Why are they doing it here? Well, because it's cheap. It's performance theater. Nobody's going to go after them. So why not blab on TV or blab on online or say these things? 
I mean, these are not the ones that if we had the same kind of censorship system or punishment system as in Russia, where if you go out and even wave now these days an empty slogan, like a, a piece of paper with nothing on it, you get arrested. I mean, these people are not going to be out protesting or any, doing anything. And so I just frankly tend to disregard them. To me, they're just noise. So just in closing then, Branislav, what are you hoping for in this counteroffensive? Because we know... We don't know what the casualties the Ukrainians have been taking, but we do know when you go on the offensive, you suffer more casualties, and that's got to be a big worry. And we know, that, of course, that Ukraine has a third of the population of Russia. Yeah. They have better arms, although, albeit they've come in rather slowly in dribbles, and we've set constantly these red lines where we can't do this, and then months later we, get, we do it, which made no yeah. sense whatsoever. But in yeah. any case, what's your sense of how this might end well my hope so first of all yes well it's true that uh, attackers generally suffer more in terms of casualties that's not universally the case and so what i'm hoping is what uh, the ukrainians will breach the russian defenses in a couple of sectors and this would cause panic in the neighboring units and the russians will just run and not defend the fortifications that they have built and this means the ukrainians can then cross them and dismantle them uh, without suffering these casualties. So the, the truism about the attacker suffering more than the defender usually just means when you attack headlong, uh, you know, into fortified places like the Russians had been doing. But I think the Ukrainian strategy will be different. Otherwise, it will make no sense. Um, in terms of also, by the way, the population size, um, yeah, the Russians have, can mobilize many more people than the Ukrainians overall, but they can't equip them properly. They can't train them. And so how useful they are militarily, it's, it's a huge question. So that's another thing I'm hoping we'll find out, because a lot of these defenses are manned by these um, untrained uh, Mobiki, basically, mobilized people. Some of them don't, I mean, quite a few don't want to be there. They're very scared about what's coming now, because the Ukrainians, by delaying the offensive, is also building up so much fear and anticipation in the Russians that they may actually crack. I mean, that happened last year, and I hope that it happens this year on a larger scale. So that's my hope, that the Ukrainians will break through. I have actually no doubt that they will break through in several places. But then they will widen the breaches, they will be able to hold uh, some of the territory, and the Russians will run. And so this will tell us that the Russian strategy of waiting out Ukraine in this and holding on to the territories they've conquered by force is failing. And that is the opening toward peace. Like The, the, the Russians have to be convinced that they cannot actually do this by force. Right now, they're not convinced. They think they can hold it. So they will keep doing it until the battlefield shows them otherwise. And so that's my hope, that this offensive will be the first step toward persuading the Russians that their strategy is just not going to work, and they do not have really alternatives at this point. What this causes in Russia, um, I'm not going to speculate, but um, for, in terms of uh, any possibility for a negotiated peace of some sort, where, you know, this is a precondition that the Russians have to realize that they cannot achieve their goals by force. I think we're not at this point yet, and I'm hoping the offensive will be successful enough to move us toward that um, uh, that situation. Well, Branislav Slanchev, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yes, thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Branislav Slanchev, who is a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego, where he teaches courses in international relations, national security and game theory, and studies military coercion, intra-war negotiations, the conduct of war, and war termination. His articles have appeared in the American Political Science Review, the American Journal of Political Science, International Studies Quarterly, and Security Studies, among others. And he's the author of Military Threats, The Cost of Coercion and the Price of Peace. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. 
Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes out in the